0: I'm Erin Brubaker and this is Love, Loss, Wine and the Gods, a Tarragon Theatre Podcast. Today we bring you a recording from our lecture conversation series, where we invite great minds to share knowledge and ideas in relation to each play in our season. Today's conversation was with two Court of Appeal judges about the prostitution case at the Ontario Court of Appeal level as well as the Supreme Court of Canada level, and also about art and justice. We had this conversation prior to a matinee performance of Soliciting Temptation by Aaron Shields, a Governor General award-winning playwright and also one of our playwrights in residence here at the theatre. Soliciting Temptation runs at Tarragon until May 4th, 2014. Hello everyone, um, welcome, thank you for spending this first Patio Sunday with us indoors. <laughs> um, uh, it's <coughs> my great pleasure to welcome Justice Feldman and Justice Cronk, um, who have very generously uh, agreed to, to speak with us today. And I think it is a, a special generosity because um, there's a lot of, of matters in their work that are difficult to speak about because um, they're, they're not able to speak about them. Their, their job is very... Uh, clear in that in that matter that they can speak to what they've written and put out in the public but they can't speak to their personal opinions or um, all of the all of the matters that go on in in the minds as they work and read um, and hear and listen um, so it's it's a great it's a great privilege to, to get a chance to, to speak with you in that and I think we can in terms of speaking about, uh, a case, we can think about a, a, a judgment a bit like a play without the playwright ple- present that we only have the words that are there to talk about. We can't talk about the intention around them or the background or the, or the opinions or the feelings or the ideas, just the words that we have to speak to. So I'll just preface um, this discussion with, with that. So uh, Justice Crock and Justice Feldman are both judges on the Court of Appeal in Ontario. And they've both been civil litigators. Uh, Justice Feldman for 15 years, and Justice Kronk for 25 years, and um, and also Justice Feldman was a trial judge for seven and a half years. And uh, I'm going to just start using first names, partly because uh, Justice Kronk is actually my aunt, so I might just I win, I
1: win,
2: she's
0: mine. I I realized as I was trying to be super professional with my clipboard that says Aaron with hearts on it (laughs) that I believe that EA gave this to me when I was eight. So, um, uh, anyway, EA has been on the Court of Appeal in Ontario since 19 – no, since 2001 and Justice Feldman since 1998. Well, I've got to be Kathy. <laughs> oh, Kathy. <laughs> <laughs> now it's done. Yeah. Also, one of their colleagues. Um, Justice Sharp. Yeah, Justice Sharp. See, I call him Robert or Bob, so I can't even remember his proper title. He takes, um, he's part- participating in a program we have here called Audit the Season, so I see him quite, we see him quite regularly as well. So I'm on a first-name basis with the whole Court of Appeal. <laughs> 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 it's really great. So, to begin, I think it would be great to hear how the prostitution case came to your court um, because that wasn't the beginning.
3: There were three initial uh, women who brought the application. One of them was named Bedford, and so that the whole case took on the name uh, Bedford. So what was the case about? It was a challenge to three laws, and there are many more laws, I have to tell you. Uh, in the criminal code uh, that deal with the whole issue of prostitution and and ones that are left are, have to do with um, uh, much more exploitative uh, aspects such as trafficking, human trafficking and forcing women, bringing women into the country and forcing them into prostitution. Those laws were not the subject of this challenge. There were three laws that were the subject of it. and they were one is called keeping a common body house or being an inmate of a common body house working there. The second one is called living off the avails of prostitution, which uh, has developed to mean someone who, um, in a in if you can imagine a parasitic way, lives off the, uh, the earnings of a prostitute that she earned as a prostitute or that. Let me put you an example. So for example, um, someone at the grocery store who sells groceries to a sex worker, that would not be living off the avails of prostitution, but a pimp, clearly a pimp, and that's where it, what it was mainly aimed at. But it turned out that it ended up being applicable to a receptionist, a driver, a chartered accountant who keeps the books. So any one of those people were considered to be living off the avails of prostitution. The third one was called Communicating for the Purpose of Prostitution and that was really aimed at street communicating on the street and being able to be on the street and solicit uh, people to have sex for money. Okay, so what, what was legal before? What was legal was prostitution, sex work, sex for money was legal. Um, what what ended up being called in the record out calls, which were all these escort services that you know they clearly exist. So if uh, a person is called a sex worker, that worker can go to a hotel room or even to a person's home to have sex with them. They just can't do it in their own home because that's called a body house. So out calls were okay, but doing it in your house or in a house where a group of other sex workers were that was not okay um, and the third thing that was okay um, was actually street prostitution as long as you didn't communicate <laughs> so <laughs> that is that okay alright so, <laughs> all right, so the, uh, the challenge was essentially based on section 7 of the charter which protects a person's uh, laws cannot infringe on a person's life, liberty, or security of the person, except in accordance with the principles of fundamental justice. That is a really important section of, uh, of our Charter of Rights. So essentially what was being alleged here was that these laws infringe on the, not only the liberty because somebody could go to jail, but on the security of the person of sex workers because it put them in danger. Uh, they couldn't work in a collective in a body house which would be would give them protection. Um, all kinds of different protections were set out in the record um, obviously being in your own place you'd be able to have more people around you'd be able to only let certain people in after you check them out etc it's, it's pretty obvious it, it would be safer. Second thing um, the second thing that could provide safety would be having bodyguards, having drivers, having uh, receptionists who could check, you know, check identities and credit cards. So not being allowed to have those things in an otherwise legal endeavor was affecting their security of the person. And uh, the third thing that was uh, in the record was the idea that street prostitutes would be safer if they had time before they got into the car with the John to sort of look them in the eye and assess them and decide whether or not, mostly I guess on intuition, whether or not they felt that they should get in the car with this person and that by having a law that said you couldn't communicate, that prohibited, you just had to get in the car and uh, you know then take your chance after that. Now the three women that brought the application here in Ontario are all either present or former sex workers, independent women who wanted to be sex workers. But we also had in the record evidence about um, street, people on the street, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it mostly came from evidence about Vancouver and the downtown east side and the prevalence of women out on the street there And, of course, in the context of the Picton murders and the fact that they were not in body houses, but they were... And the whole idea of their voluntariness is something to be discussed and thought about too, but that they were street workers living on the street and not in body houses, but still wanted the opportunity to be able to have a few seconds to assess the person they were going to go with.
2: So, I have more, but why don't I let you continue. Why don't I just pick up on on that point for a moment, that um, there was a very large, what we call evidentiary record in this case, meaning there was mountains of evidence uh, that had gone before the trial judge. And the evidence indicated, as Justice Feldman just said, uh, that um, prostitutes are mostly women, not entirely women, but mostly women, (coughs) uh, that uh, many of them uh, are voluntary, the uh, voluntary sex workers, they choose to be sex workers, but the record also demonstrated that there were literally thousands of women uh, across the country who engage in prostitution because they have no meaningful choice not to. And the record also showed that of that category, the involuntary sex workers, many, not all, but many, were uh, Aboriginal. Uh, So you put all that together and there was, by definition, vulnerable group of people who are not electing to engage in this activity but were compelled to by a variety of societal or environmental uh, circumstances. So that's really yeah. uh, an important important point that Justice Feldman is emphasizing. So do you want me to spend two minutes? Could I min- just add yeah. one thing to that? Sure. Yeah.
3: So just this voluntary, involuntary,
2: the whole aspect of
3: coercion by pimps and human traffickers, that's truly involuntary. The type of The the involuntary group that uh, Justice Prank is just talking about now are women on the street, and we were told that they, you know, this is what they felt they had to do. It's not like they were looking to get out of the sex trade, but they were forced into it by circumstances. They weren't like the three women uh, who brought the application, who were just independent, confident women who chose this profession. Could have, I mean, they... Could have done something else, possibly, but felt that they wanted to do this. So it's just a little different group.
0: So, what I think what you're saying here is that um, your thinking around this case had to apply to all of these circumstances, exactly, exactly. which is tremendously challenging because um, yeah. while your judgment um, is is filled with uh, responses to grey areas, I think, having, having looked at it, um, that's a very difficult task to, to apply the same uh, rules to the two scenarios that you've just, I, I mean, there are infinite scenarios but to the two general scenarios that you've
2: just outlined. I think that's really, really important because uh, Canada's prostitution laws are federal laws. They're set out in the criminal code, as Justice Feldman said, which means they apply across the country. So, however, however those laws are interpreted, it affects everybody who's caught by those laws, not just the group of people who come before the court. So, that's why we're sort of emphasizing that point. Could I just add one other thing, and then whatever you want. Um, Aaron referred at the at the beginning um, uh, of this uh, discussion that um, you know what what judges do is different uh, from what artists do in a pretty fundamental way, and maybe we'll talk about that. Um, but what I wanted to emphasize is that it, prostitution, of course, is a very controversial matter. And it, it, it provokes great emotion, heated debate, um, uh, differing views, uh, and it can be very polarizing. None of that is the job of the judicial system to weigh in on. That's not the job that you've given us, that the public has given us. That's the job for Parliament to sort out. Parliament writes the laws... They make the policy decisions about what is or isn't illegal and how they're going to regulate or not regulate uh, an activity. So if you think about it that way, prostitution's an economic activity. Parliament, the Supreme Court of Canada has now again said in the Bedford case that Parliament has the right to regulate public nuisance, which and that's an aspect of prostitution, and Parliament has the right to regulate for the protection of prostitutes. And that's the other side of the same coin. So the issue before us, and the only issue before us, and the reason I'm sort of drilling down on this a bit, is that it was our job to decide, and then the Supreme Court's job to decide, whether the way Parliament had done it, whether the existing laws uh, complied with the charter or offended the charter. Mm-hmm. That's a very different question than saying should prostitution be legal? Prostitution is legal, right? So the issue was whether the way they went about regulating it uh, was constitutionally valid or invalid. That's what the case was about. And uh, and you okay. just
0: raised something here, which is that um, both your court's ruling and then subsequently the Supreme Court's ruling are um, responses to the charter. Yeah. Um, and previously, uh, so your colleague, uh, Robert Sharp was saying to me, you know, previously the laws were um, sort of <coughs> moral decrees by parliamentarians um, pre the, the charter, based on a societal understanding and discourse. Um, and, and then the charter provides a new lens through which to examine those laws.
2: Um, so, he should be here. That's pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that great about, about Your phrase people. or his phrase? <laughs> I, I,
0: I think it might I don't know, it was a collaboration. <laughs> <laughs> it was a collaboration. But, uh, but what was very interesting in this conversation is that he started by saying, because, you know, he spends a lot of time at the theater this season, and he said he likes to come here because in your work, um, you have to, you have to be um, tremendously analytical. And he said, you know, you have to think in a very strict box. And I said, well, so do we, we work in a box too. But mm-hmm. um, uh, he said, so he, he was speaking about that and he was saying, you know, my impression of, of your work here in the theatre is that you, you respond to intuition and impressions and images, and we can't do that. Um, uh, but then we got to this idea of looking at something through a new lens because he was saying in a precedent setting case like this one, you do have to um, think of applying the law in new ways that haven't yet been seen, and so um, you know one thing that that I wondered if, if it if it might not be a stretch to say that in some instances both artists and um, lawmakers or or judges um, they try to create insight in a society to make meaning. Um, so I wonder, I wonder how that sits with you. We can come back to it um, if you don't have a, have a first impression of it. But, but I'm,
3: I'm, I'm curious about, about that. Um, can yeah, I say first? Yeah. Oh, well, I think that's, that's true, and it's great. But I think the preface that you started with is critical, and that is we are extremely constrained, <laughs> and that's the way it's supposed to be, uh, by the record <laughs> and by the law that we're being asked to apply. That's that's it. We we are not supposed to go outside. I mean, clearly we're going to bring who we are to the job of looking at the record and analyzing it. When I say the record, that's the evidence that's before the court and uh, applying the law. Mm
1: -hmm.
3: But, and there's also creativity in the way we write the judgments and trying to write them in a way that's lucid and interesting and clear Mm-hmm. Um, and and there are other aspects. Careful, trying to explain why a loser loses and a winner wins. And there are lots of aspects mm-hmm. to, to the creativity in writing the judgment. But no f- no sort of flights of fancy or self-indulgence about how we'd like to see things sure. go. And uh, that's a really important constraint on our role and, and very appropriate and something that society <coughs> demands of us. Yeah.
0: And and that makes me think about I was going to maybe get to this later, but since you're speaking about writing a judgment, um, uh, I, I once had a conversation with EA where she was telling me about what's what happens sometimes. One of the greatest challenges of a judge is um, when you're going to to you're, you're going to create the judgment, you're going to put it to paper, and it won't write. And I said, "What do you mean it won't write? You know, it's a really interesting turn of phrase. Uh, when a judgment won't write, and uh, it's. It, you hear a case, you decide where you want to go in your judgment, and you can't make the law apply. So then you have to revisit your your decision, um, and and that was a really interesting concept to me. Is there
2: is there I can sort there of explain? Yeah, could you elaborate that? that yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, I just to co- I comment too on your exchange mm-hmm. with uh, with Justice Bellman. Yeah. Um, it, judges aren't lawmakers um, in a technical. Sorry, sense. I used the wrong. That, term. No, that's okay. But I just want uh, parliamentarians are. You know, people in Parliament make the laws, judges interpret the laws. And, um, you know, when, when you talk about judges not being able to be um, creative or use their imagination, that's our greatest strength and maybe our greatest weakness all at the same time. But what it really means is, we, we tell juries in, in instructions to the juries in a jury trial all the time, do not decide this case based on sympathy, do not decide this case based <coughs> on emotion. Um, Justice requires (coughs) compassion. Without compassion, there is no justice. But you can't decide a case as a judge based on, as Justice Feldman said, what you think the result should be. Your personal opinions are relevant. You can't decide it based on, even if the circumstances are really compelling and very sympathetic, you don't decide a case based on sympathy. That's bad law. Uh, And that could affect a whole bunch of people that aren't in court in front of you. Um, so you always have to bear that in mind. So, uh, you know, they say that the law is run by logic, um, and I think that's its greatest strength, but it's also its greatest greatest weakness. So, anyway, that's sort of by, by there. But uh, when a judgment won't write is related, uh, because what, what I meant by it, and um, Kathy can indicate what, what she means by it, you hear a case, and you have a view as to what you think the right legal result is, what you think the law requires, what the law, uh, how you should interpret the law, because often what we're doing is interpreting the law. But then you sit down, you put pen to paper, and the law actually prevents you getting to that result. Because you're you to get to that result, you're either stretching it, or being intellectually shading, uh, or you're not being consistent with precedent, or uh, you're right out of the box. Like you're just, it's nuts, okay? So any of those reasons can prevent you getting to a result that you might want to get to. That's what it means. It doesn't write, OK? It gets complicated and dense and not true to what the law is. And that means you have no choice. You go back and you say, well, I must have been wrong. Let me start again. And then you analyze it again. And if you do that, uh, you know, for judges who say it, it writes well or it wrote easily, it, it means you, it was consistent with where the law was. The law, Every decision builds on decisions before it. It's not like out of whole cloth. You're always looking at what the law is as it exists now and, and interpreting it based on the issues in the case. And if it writes easily, it's very reassuring because it likely means you're on the right track. You may not say it right. It doesn't mean you're always right. They, they reverse us too. It's cheeky, actually. But, <laughs> <laughs> but you, you try to get the best result consistent with what the law is. So that's what I meant. I don't know why. Would mean
3: no, that. I can't say that any better. I mean, it's a, it's a, I think, a really interesting concept to think about that you hear the case and, you, and it strikes you a certain way that, you know, it's a com, com, facts compel one, one result, the, the just result, and you think the law either goes that way or should go that way, and, and you, you can interpret the law in a way that will get to that result. And then the test is, can I write it out so that it makes sense? And when you can't, then you know that, you, as, you know, as EA said, you just... Unfortunately, you were wrong. And the person that you thought you could help, you just can't help. And that, but that turns out to be the correct result on the law.
0: So uh, further to that, um, it seems that there, there must be instances where there's sort of only one way to go. The law demands something in particular. But there are other instances where y- you use the word interpretation at <coughs> several times. So there are other instances where um, there are, are multiple legal possibilities um, in interpretation. And perhaps an example of this, returning to this case, is the communication aspect of um, of the judgment. Um, and uh, it was interesting reading the judgment and just seeing like how clearly. Um, and respectful, how clearly, how clearly the um, how clear the respect was for these two possible interpretations within the judgment, but that there were with, with there was within your court um, two opinions, or well, not opinions. It's very tricky to speak. I mean, really yeah. <laughs> having trouble no, no, finding the right words. That's right. right. Opinion, That's totally opinion right. is okay. Yeah, totally opinion good. is okay. Okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> 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 woo. Um, two. Two interpretations. So, can you speak a little bit to the um, what's the word? the The more peop- the majority position, and um, and the dissension on on your court's judgment.
2: Why don't you do that? Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, uh, I don't know if people are aware of what actually happened at the two levels of court. Should I spend two seconds? Yeah, yeah, please do. Start with, with the trial. Trial, yeah. Yeah. trial judge. Okay. Let me just touch it right. So. <coughs> uh, I can go back and we can talk about it more if you want, but in a nutshell. Uh, um, an application was brought by these three women uh, that Justice Feldman described in the Superior Court of Justice, which is our trial level. For and It was a constitutional challenge and it was for a declaration that these three sections of the Criminal Code were unconstitutional because they offended Section 7 of the Charter that Justice Feldman's already talked about. So the three, three sections, you'll remember, are the body house provision, the living on avails, and the no communicating. All right, those are the three sections. The trial judge, Justice Susan Himmel, very experienced trial judge, um, uh, heard the case over many months, took many months to consider it, wrote a very lengthy judgment, and declared all three provisions unconstitutional for reasons that she set out in very detailed reasons. The Attorney General for Ontario and the Attorney General for Canada appealed to our court because all three provisions had been struck down. So we're the appellate court, we hear those appeals. So the same three sections were an issue, and the attorneys general were arguing that the application judge, the superior court judge, got it wrong on all three. They were trying to save all three, all right? In our court, five judges, uh, which is uh, not always the case, indeed, usually it's not the case, uh, but it sometimes is the case, five judges heard the case. And the majority, three judges, uh, held that the body house provision was unconstitutional and the living on a veil's provision was unconstitutional um, and granted subject a subject r- to, r- to. Sorry, yeah. Sorry. Subject
3: to exploitation. To p- subject to exploitation. Right, right. exactly, yeah. Which um, we'll get back to. Oh, okay. okay. We won't get lost. <laughs> so I'll remind you.
2: On the first one, the body house one, uh, the, the, uh, I should back up and say the court agreed on. Um, uh, two thirds of the issues. There was complete agreement on two thirds of the issue. So it wasn't just the majority. Everybody on the court said the body house provision was unconstitutional. And gra- we granted a declaration saying that law cannot stand, but we're suspending the effect of that declaration for 12 months to give Parliament the opportunity to rewrite the law uh, in a way that doesn't offend the Charter if that's what Parliament decides <coughs> to do. Okay, so we were all agreed on that the next one was the avails provision and we were all agreed that uh, that it was unconstitutional to the extent that it captured the kind of people that justice feldman described that weren't exploiting prostitutes the receptionists the accountants that weren't engaged in a commercial exploitation it was uh, so it was the law was disproportionate grossly disproportionate that's the magic legal language to a legitimate objective of parliament of regulating nuisance and regulating prostitution, so the court, all of us, all of us agreed, read into or interpreted that provision of the of the code in a way that said, this only applies to people who are exploiting prostitutes. The only people who are going to get caught by this, uh, and be criminals for living on the avails, are people who are exploiting prostitutes. So, big pips, issue. Pips. Exactly. Right. Exactly. And then the third category is where there was disagreement. So, so far, two-thirds agreement. The third category is the communicating provision, right? And the majority concluded that that provision was not unconstitutional. And uh, another judge on the court, and I'm saying another judge because I didn't write it, dissented, disagreed, and said it is unconstitutional for reasons he set out, and I agreed with him. So, So there was a split on the court on the communicating provision. In the result out of our court, two of the provisions were struck down. One of them was upheld, because majority rules, right? But there was a dissent. So it went up to the Supreme Court of Canada, and very quickly, uh, Chief Justice Beverly McLaughlin, the Chief Justice of Canada, wrote the decision uh, for the entire court. It was unanimous, and all three provisions were struck down as unconstitutional. Uh, re- the reasoning of our court on the first two was accepted, so S- uh, a declaration of unconstitutionality <coughs> on the body house, but a 12-month delay before that took effect. Uh, a- an interpretation of the Avails provision that means that only no, it only. Oh, they didn't. Sorry, Kathy will explain that. Yeah. And then on communicating, <laughs> jump right over that, <laughs> and then on communicating um, uh, upheld the dissent that it was unconstitutional too. So get in there and correct what I just. Sorry, just on the good? Avails,
3: yep. they uh, the governments were arguing that they cross appealed to the Supreme Court of Canada and said that the whole avail se- section should go and it shouldn't be just limited the way we tried to limit it to save, <coughs> save the section to, Ooh, to right. be, yeah, to be yeah. able to uh, still right. have charges against pimps and uh, the Supreme Court just didn't really talk about it too much I think it's fair to say they just uh, struck the whole thing down
0: so, okay, so, so we'll go
2: into two. Two down, it, sorry, t- two down, one okay, three down. Right, that's oh. the score so far. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so I just want to go into this um, uh, exploitation thing for a second, because I think it, it, first of all, it highlights something that I wanted to say at the beginning that I forgot, which is um, the, the other area that I think ties our discussion to the play that most of you will see this afternoon is um, speaking to gray zones. Of human ex- um, experience and existence, and um, how does one define exploitation? You know, if that's if that's the uh, the decree is except for in cases of of exploitation, how does one define that? And then, what permission or possibilities does that offer our government in applying the judgment um, to writing their own laws? Yeah, it seems very
2: slippery
3: and difficult. Well, the the government is free to completely rewrite the law as long as as it takes the government takes into account what the Supreme Court has already said about how the sections that existed before uh, infringe the Charter. So it has to take that into account, but subject to that, they can all over again and rethink the whole concept and and uh, you know it was come back to you well yeah <laughs> in the record uh, I can tell you there was lots of evidence about what uh, the laws are in other countries different types of laws and regimes that have been tried in the Netherlands and New Zealand and in Amsterdam and uh, how they have worked all different types of approaches to uh, Regulating sex work, so they are really free to stand back and decide what the best way is, as long as sex workers are going to have uh, protection, safety protections.
0: So is it po- that might be
3: an overstatement, but that's essentially.
0: So is it possible that they'll rewrite the law, and people will find that it in fact um, doesn't implement your judgment and bring it before you again? Is that possible?
2: Yes. Yeah. Short answer? Yes. Yeah. Uh, Here's the the reason I said yes. This is the concept. As Justice Feldman said, uh, uh, first of all, start from the proposition always that under our form of parliamentary democracy, there's a division of responsibilities. And it is for parliament or the executive to write the laws, as we said. It is for the judiciary to interpret and apply the laws. So the, the effect of the Supreme Court's decision in this case is that uh, not that Parliament didn't have the right to write the law, but that they didn't do it the right way. Right. So they get another shot if that's what they want, uh, If they elect to do that. They may decide to do it, they may not. Uh, but if they do decide to rewrite those laws, then they have to do it in a way that doesn't offend the Charter. And once those laws, so let's just hypothetically say they decide to do that. I don't know what they're going to do, but if, the, if Parliament decides to do that and they pass new laws um, that uh, regulate uh, the way pro- prostitution is carried out, then that could be subject to a new constitutional challenge. That's really what Aaron's asking us. And the answer is yes, of course, because the Charter is the supreme law of Canada. We're all protected by the Charter and because the one overriding constraint on Parliament that we've agreed to as a collectivity is that they must abide by the Charter. We, ask, we have to abide by it too, which is why the results in our cases uh, uh, must apply the Charter, must if we can't read something out of the blue into the Charter. We, you know, I, I, I don't know if this is, I don't know if the constitutional scholars in the world, I'm certainly not one of them, I uh, would say this is a right way to view it or not, but it's like a family compact. What, what the Charter was in Canada, whether one believes in the Charter or not, we have it. And the Charter is our supreme law. And it represents a consensus of the way we're going to govern ourselves and the way we're going to live with each other. And what is or isn't acceptable, conduct. And it does that in a way by protecting, it, it, the, the purpose of the Charter is to protect the minority. If you think about it that way, right? It's to protect the minority against the majoritarian interest. So it's designed to protect the vulnerable. It's designed to ensure that we all enjoy the protection of the same laws and that the laws are applied equally and fairly uh, and not disproportionately, not grossly disproportionate. So, long way of saying yes, new laws are always subject to review and maybe a constitutional challenge. But, you know, in fairness, I have to say that often when the courts say that, Parliament has to rewrite the laws. They rewrite the laws, and they're perfectly fine.
0: And practically speaking, right now, just before we came in here, um, Justice Bellman was telling me that they are not enforcing these laws now in the interim. I
3: don't know that. You for don't certain. know. that? Okay, I don't know that for certain. We were told that at one point in court, but whether whether
2: I don't know that myself. Oh, at all. I see. Okay. Yeah. Okay. You
0: were told in court that, that uh, the current since the Supreme Court ruling.
2: Yeah, we don't actually know, but apparently <coughs> apparently that was at one point the case it may still be we're not sure. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Once the case leaves us, we have no further information about the case. Right. Except what the Supreme Court tells us.
0: And tells all of us. Tells all of us. Right. Tells, yeah. yeah. Exactly. There was a question a few times up in the
4: meeting. Gary Watson, a retired law professor, a long-time acquaintance of both I guess. Um, just to give some color to the debate. Your know, description of the judicial function uh, was what we call legal positivism. We don't make the law, we just interpret the law. Um, just as Chief Justice Roberts of the United States Supreme Court told the Senate his confirmation hearing, we don't make the law, we just interpret the law, just follow precedent, which all turned out to be absolute BS. Uh, because it <laughs> you turned out... that about us, Gary. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you that
3: about us. No, no. <laughs>
4: <laughs> to realize that there are other philosophies of the judicial role than legal positivism to take <coughs> down language uh, Oliver Wendell Holmes the famous long deceased US judge says the life of the law is not logic but experience and you can't determine the outcome of the case before you entirely on the basis of cases that have gone beforehand the legal realists would say that as Justice Posner has just written in the most recent book on the role of judges, he says that the, the legal positivist approach just doesn't accord with the facts and that you bring your own experience and your own perspectives to uh, the judicial function. I happen to be an unblemished legal realist, so I believe, I believe Posner and I believe Oliver Wendell Holmes. And one of the reasons why uh, the Prime Minister is trying to choose judges that will give effect to his political perspectives is because he believes judges are legal realists and not legal positivists. But I just threw that out to make sure that people who were not familiar with the breadth of the debate don't necessarily, not everyone buys the legal positivist theory. If I was in your situation I'd probably adopt it.
2: Uh, well, I, I, I want to
0: give a, a chance to, to <coughs> the justices to to say whatever they want in response to that. But I just would like to clarify from a slightly outside perspective that it seemed to me that what um, Justices Cronk and Feldman were articulating at the beginning of our conversation um, was what their their job is technically, um, what the job that they are given is. Um, but we also heard, of course, we're humans. We bring our human selves to whatever jobs we are given and whatever rules there are. Um, and, and you're sort of alluding, I think, to um, differences between what a job is and practically things that happen. There the, the are tasks that we're given that we have to serve to the best of our ability um, as they're, they're written and deemed. And then there is, there's human nature that... That can be debated greatly. I, I adopt
2: it. everything she just said. <laughs> <laughs> said you agree better. with my
0: dissenting? Um, <laughs> no, I,
2: just, I just totally cool. agree with that. Uh-huh. <laughs> You're such a quick study,
0: Erin. <laughs> <laughs> I'm. I'd I'm, like reading the judgment. I'm, I'm warming up now. Mm. Getting, <laughs> getting 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 a bit closer. Yeah, not no, no, t- no, I'm sorry.
2: Go ahead. No. Yeah. Not non-facetiously. I, uh, I just wanted to add this. Obviously, we're not not going to comment, Gary, on much of what you said for maybe obvious reasons, but um, uh, judges judges are like everybody else, we're we're humans, and we bring to our job our life experiences, and uh, we bring um, the wisdom we've gained, and we bring uh, the good judgment or the bad judgment that we've managed to build up over time. Um, uh, But at the end of the day, when you sit on the appeal court in this province, your job is to apply the law. And if we wanted to make the law, we could have run for parliament most of us didn't. So, uh, you, you know, there, there are different views in the legal academy about the philosophies of judging, but the reality is, is when you pick up the pen and have to write the judgment, you're applying the law, you're not making it up.
0: I, I think what you're getting at here is another question of responsibility, which, which seems quite great <laughs> to me. <laughs> um, and, and also a pretty, pretty fascinating, like what do you, and, and maybe I will ask you to speak to your human emotion in, in this instance, in, in like how does it feel, how does that responsibility feel, how, how do you feel about that, the, the responsibility of having a task that is in some ways impossible, um, um, but yet you, you have to do it anyway.
3: Are you asking about this particular case? No, generally your role as a judge. Well... I consider it a huge privilege, and I think all of uh, all of my colleagues do. And when you think of it in terms of a privilege that you've been handed and trusted uh, to carry out, then you can, you know, you can impose the parameters on yourself. I hope. Whether the judges that Gary's talking about have looked at it that way, I don't know. I mean, you, you know, obviously, we're also the privilege and the trust is also to do what is right, and as EA said earlier, to do justice. I mean, there's just no point if if we're not going to be there to do justice. And uh, I, I think people come expecting justice, and that's exactly what we think we do every day. So, you know, we're not going to do something that, oh, well, the law, it's going to be a rare time, let's say, when anyone's going to say, well, the law is forcing me to do this even though I think it's unjust. I mean, that's part of, that's part of the trust in us, that, that we'll find a way, if it's, if it's an injustice, to have the law apply in a just way to get a just result. Um, so that's, that's really where I come from, that it's a privilege that I am very grateful for, and that, I, and that the trust in me and in, in
2: all of our colleagues is something that uh, we don't take for granted. Maybe it's um, uh, (coughs) helpful to add this too. Constitutional cases are different from other legal cases because what's at issue in a constitutional case is uh, whether a law is unlawful because it doesn't uh, conform with the Charter. But in all the other kinds of cases, what you're being asked to do is to apply the existing law. right? You're not being asked to change it. uh, You're being asked to interpret it, but you're not being asked to strike it or uphold it. That's not even on the table. It's only in constitutional cases uh, that, that's, that that's on the table. So um, what you try to do day in and day out is exactly what Justice Feldman said, what you think the justice of the case requires. But sometimes the law won't allow you to get there. Um, you hope that most of the time w- w- won't allow you to get to where you think the justice of the case is. That's not personal opinion. It's what your assessment of the facts are, what the record is. Uh, but most of the time, that's not the case. Most of the time, you try to do. The other thing I just add to it, and then it, it, it stop, is that uh, the Ontario Court of Appeal has two functions. By far and away, its primary function is what's called what lawyers call error correction. Uh, its job is to correct errors made by the judge below, the trial judge. That's what we do. Uh, pick your number: ninety percent, eighty-five, ninety-five percent of the time. The rest of the time, it's what we call jurisprudential, meaning we're reviewing the law, and uh, writing, writing the law. Those cases are by far and away in the minority. Most of the time, <coughs> uh, cases before us are the trial judge made this mistake, this mistake, this mistake, this mistake, that's what somebody says, and you have to decide whether they're right or wrong. That's error correction. Constitutional cases are very different, and as you can see it's.
0: And, and how would you apply that to this case?
3: Well, this case I think is clearly jurisprudential and uh, you know, to also go back to Gary's point I think this, this case actually maybe you disagree but this case I think is a really good example of one where all of the judgments started off by saying this, this isn't about um, the legality of prostitution and it's not about whether the judges agree with prostitution think it's a good thing, think it's a bad thing it wasn't about that at all and so that's not and what anyone was asking anybody to decide, and you not so you don't bring that in to decide whether or not the charter protections are there based on whether you like the idea of prostitution. And everyone was careful to make that very, very clear.
0: Um, you had a question. Yeah,
4: uh, just to get back on, on the case itself um, the question of the 12 month suspension did that apply to all three issues? The it Supreme did, eh? Court of it yes. did. So my second question is, um, obviously the parties before you... Uh, Can you speak up, please? I said th- that obviously, or maybe not obviously, the parties before you would not have uh, anticipated that there would have been that moratorium or that suspension for the 12 months. Was there any discussion of how that vacuum uh, might uh, be filled out? In other words, how would that affect the, the lives of uh, sex workers, uh, the way they carry on their business. Were there any submissions on that? Because that would be interesting.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh. They, uh, I'll just give you my answer to that, and then Justice Bellman can give you hers. Um, they, they would have anticipated it, because in a constitutional case, a big yeah. part of the case is the remedy. Mm-hmm. You know, this, it, it, we want to win because of A, B, and C, <coughs> and if we win, this is what we want you to do. That's the remedy. So the lawyers who show up to argue a constitutional case, part of their argument's always the remedy. Uh, particularly when they're government lawyers. They're, you know, they're either defending legislation, or they're never challenging it, they're defending legislation, <laughs> and it, it, you know, they always want time to fix it if they, if they lose. So, so the, suspen- eight, the possibility of a declaration declaring the laws unconstitutional was the exact issue in the case. The possibility of a suspension was very much on everybody's radar, and the issue would be for how long and with, with what effect. Um, The second part of your question was a discussion of how that would affect people on the ground. Again, not our job, all right? Our job is to declare whether the law is valid or invalid and the appropriate remedy. So, for example, in in our court, you you remember that what we said was there was um, a declaration on the body house provision that it was unconstitutional, (coughs) but that declaration was suspended for 12 months, but there was a different remedy on the avails provision. Because (coughs) the sales provision was also unconstitutional, but it wasn't declared unconstitutional. It was read in a way that confined it to people who were exploiting prostitutes. So, in that sense, the law was upheld if read in this way, would be the way. Is that a fair way to? So, you see, the remedy was different? So, remedy is a very big part of every constitutional case.
0: Because a different room to the lawmakers. Exactly. Yeah, Mm exactly.
2: Just to add to that, it's a
3: very perceptive question and and I can tell you that if anybody wants to look at the Supreme Court of Canada decision, uh, the last four paragraphs the Chief Justice actually struggles with that issue. Should we have it effective right now um, or should we not? And I'll just read you the last two paragraphs. She says, uh, so it's on the one hand immediate invalidity would leave prostitution totally unregulated. That's a, and there's more. And then she says, on the other hand, leaving the prohibitions against body houses living on the avails of prostitution and public communication for purposes of prostitution in place in their present form leaves prostitutes at increased risk for the time of the suspension, risks which violate their constitutional right to security of the person. The choice between suspending the declaration of invalidity and allowing it to take immediate effect is not an easy one. Neither alternative is without difficulty. However, considering all the interests at stake, I conclude, this is the Chief Justice speaking, that the declaration of invalidity should be suspended for one year. So it's not just off the top, it was really thought through. Thank you. So, um, this lady has a question. oh, sorry, yeah. Just say my name is uh, Sherry
1: Mossoff and I am a uh, retired litigation lawyer. And I just wanted to comment on what Professor Watson and the justices were saying, um, and something that uh, was said earlier about our system. And I think our system is not a perfect system in any respect, but I think it's a pretty good system. There's um, a way to uh, address the, the government and the way the government makes the laws. And while uh, and there's an avenue for for people to to have their say. And within the constraints of the law, and what you were saying before, Justice Prong, um, writing a, a decision and being constrained by the facts before you, and, and Professor, I have all due respect I've read many of your books. <laughs> and And the two come together. Right? The, the teachings come through the students who make the representations to the court. And so I believe it all comes together. and ends up on your uh, on your tables when you are making the decisions and uh, interpreting the legislation. And one example I thought of recently was the case that didn't come before you, but when they, um, there's the case in Toronto where um, a kid was stealing from the um, downtown and somebody had um, put him, had held him um, from the supermarket and they they had, that it was called, um, sorry, they had uh, unheld him, and they had changed the law based on that and the law was written. So I was wondering if you had ever come and had a case before you where you were, unable to change the law when you had wanted to? Had you ever been faced with that decision, where you actually wanted to change the law, but were unable to? Were you ever boxed in because of of the way the law was written? Did you understand my question?
2: I understand the question. I'm doing a Rolodex in my head. Sorry. <laughs> uh, to, um, to put either of you on the spot. No, no, I, uh, you, you didn't. I mean, for me, you didn't. Um, there are certainly, I think I'll answer it this way. There have certainly been cases where, uh, to me, the, the legal result was clear, whether I liked it or not. You know? <laughs> End of story. Um, there are other ca- sorry. There, oh, no, there, sorry. there are other cases where it wasn't so clear. <coughs> and, and if something uh, lends itself to two interpretations, both of which are equally legitimate, right? you go where you think the justice is, right, obviously. All right. obviously. Uh, in the first situation, whether you think that's where the justice is or not becomes irrelevant. Of course.
0: And that's kind of what I wanted to ask you, but I, I, I suspected that was a great answer given that I know there's other things that you can't talk about. Um, um, but it makes me think about how you deal with um, emotion and personal <coughs> belief. And um, to ask that question in another way, um, it could be argued that, that what you hear in a case is essentially narrative, <coughs> a, a form of, of storytelling is what you, what you hear. And, um, and, I, and as a judge, how do you respond to, to story um, in a way that's not governed by emotion?
2: Just before Justice Feldman answers <laughs> that, <laughs> could I just come back to this lady's question for just a second? Oh, sure. Yeah. <laughs> the Rolodex has the <laughs> <laughs> I've got it. Yeah. yeah, here's an example of where. What you think the justice of the case uh, is becomes irrelevant. Um, we, we have, uh, every province in Canada has this, and it exists federally too. We have what are called, you'll understand this immediately, as a form of limitation periods. So we have a statute in Ontario that's called the Limitations Act. <coughs> and for example, it says that for most lawsuits, not all lawsuits, but for most lawsuits, you have two years to start the lawsuit from the ta- time of the wrong or the time of the breach of contract, or the time you were assaulted, or the time of whatever, you got two years, okay? If you start your lawsuit after the two years, you're out of time, right? You're, and the legal term is you're statute barred. It's time barred, okay? Absolutely nothing a judge can do about that. Um, if, that if it's clear that the two-year limitation period applies and you start late, doesn't matter what I think of the righteousness of the cause. It doesn't matter how awful it is or it isn't what happened to somebody. It's over. Uh, so that's actually uh, quite a true example of, of the situation. Now, I'd really like to hear Justice Belknap. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs>
0: <know>, <laughs>
2: <you a>
0: <laughs> well, well, I mean, you, you. Okay, I'll put I put it in a, in another way. I mean, Good. I mean, <laughs> 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 um, you, you know, you you raised earlier, um, and and I know that the 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 Picton horrors were were part of what you heard in this in this case, um, and 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 so when I say storytelling, I don't mean fabrication. You know, I mean I mean just just human stories being shared that you have to listen to and you have to hear. Um, and you've been answering this question all through our conversation, um, but I just just want to sort of raise the challenge of that and perhaps like. Make a link between, um, you know, the rest of your afternoon in, in hearing a story, um, and uh, and narrative, and and then how we apply our our minds to our responses to that. Um, discuss. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
3: all right. Well, I'll do it from the throwing a monkey wrench into the proposition. Okay. Great. Uh, and I, I think that. A really good example is, um, and I don't know if any of you have been on a jury, but when you're on a jury, and let's say it's a murder trial, and the evidence comes in and you think you're pretty darn sure that the person in front of you murdered the poor victim. And you feel really bad for the victim, and and you really don't like the murderer, the person who looks like the murderer and you hear the whole story and it's laid out with all the evidence and it could be very gruesome and very, very unpleasant. But the bottom line is that there are rules, very important rules that are applied before you can find someone guilty of a crime and you have to be satisfied beyond a reasonable doubt and the trial judge explains that to the jury and explains to the jury that if you think he, he or she probably did it, you acquit, because that's not proof beyond a reasonable doubt. So you don't let the story <laughs> influence the outcome. The law has to influence the outcome.
0: And, and I suppose you can reconcile that with yourself um, based on all of the repercussions of any judgment on, on future, future judgments or the possibilities of um, other harm. Um, You know, with what you were speaking about at the very beginning of this conversation, that the 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 judgment that you made about about this case, you had to apply it to a plethora of situations. So you can't take one particular situation and (coughs) um, make uh, a decision based on that that's going to affect so many other things.
2: It could, yeah, it could. um, I just want to echo what Justice Bellman said I think her example is actually a really good one uh, because um, if, you th- if you think about it, um, the, r- the reason there are rules in criminal trials like the rule that the crown or the state has to prove the case beyond a reasonable doubt is because one of our fundamental values is we don't uh, 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 we try to avoid wrongful convictions. we don't convict the innocent. And what goes along with that is that the standard for putting somebody in jail, taking their liberty away, requires a very high threshold of proof. So you don't uh, diminish or reduce or qualify (coughs) the standard the Crown has to meet because you think this person's really guilty. That rule's gotta apply across the board to everybody because if we don't apply it across the board to everybody, which means sometimes that maybe people are acquitted that you as a judge don't think should be acquitted. That's because the Crown didn't prove their case because tomorrow it could be you or it could be me. So the rule's gotta be clear and applied all the time and the Crown held to it. So in that sense I think uh, there's a reason Justice Feldman's a senior judge. She's really good at that.
0: <laughs> I think that on that note, we'll start to conclude here because I know that the doors are opening downstairs for soliciting temptation. Um, and I'll just uh, conclude by saying that we've added another layer of, of story and history to this room where the play you're about to see was rehearsed for weeks in this very spot where you're sitting now. And now we've had this conversation, so we've just you know um <laughs> added to the to the matter that's sitting around us <laughs> in this space. Um thank you for having us. Thank yes, you really so funny.
2: much. Yeah. Thanks very much.
0: This has been an episode of love, loss, wine and the gods, a Tarragon Theater podcast.